Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC's Critical Insights. My name is Jeff Scott, and I am a partner in the litigation group and co-lead of SNC's securities litigation practice. I'm here today with two of my partners. First, you have Steve Pekin, the former co-director of the SEC's Enforcement Division, and now lead of the firm's Securities and Commodities Investigations and Enforcement Practice. We also have with us Julia Malkina. She is co-lead of SNC's Securities Litigation Practice with me. Today, we'll discuss developments in the priorities of the SEC's Enforcement Division in light of the new presidential administration and recent enforcement trends. We will also offer practice guidance concerning the handling of enforcement investigations in light of the SEC's priorities. With the change in presidential administrations, there is new leadership at the SEC. Gary Gensler, who is the former chairman of the CFTC, began his tenure as chairman of the SEC last year. He is joined by Gurbir Grawal, former New Jersey Attorney General, who is now leading the SEC's Enforcement Division, and by Renee Jones, a corporate and securities law professor, who now heads up the SEC's Corporation Finance Division. Steve, given your former role, can you please give us some insights into the enforcement priorities of the SEC's new leadership? Jeff, to begin, the new leadership is strongly focused on climate change and other ESG or environmental, social, and governance issues. Last March, the SEC announced a new climate and ESG task force in the enforcement division. The task force is developing initiatives to proactively identify ESG-related misconduct, including data analysis to identify potential violations. It is working closely with the divisions of corporation finance, investment management, and examinations. Creation of this task force is, in my view, a clear harbinger of enforcement activity to come in this space. The potential for significant enforcement activity pertaining to ESG is heightened by the SEC's leadership's emphasis on new ESG-related rulemaking. For example, last February, then-acting chair of the SEC, Allison Heron-Lee, announced that she was directing the Division of Corporation Finance to enhance its focus on climate-related disclosure and public company filings, including by updating guidance that the SEC had previously provided in 2010 regarding disclosure requirements on climate change matters. Similarly, Chairman Gensler has stated that the SEC is planning to develop rules requiring mandatory disclosure of climate risks. Last March, the SEC called for public input on potential climate change disclosure rules And in July, Chairman Gensler announced that he had directed SEC staff to develop a mandatory climate risk rule proposal for consideration, which was initially intended to be prepared by the end of 2021. The SEC has, of yet, not published the proposal. In addition, last June, the SEC released its Spring 2021 Agency Rule List, which indicated that the Commission is considering issuing notices of proposed rulemaking for three ESG-related disclosure rules. The first proposal concerns requirements for investment companies and investment advisors related to ESG factors. The second proposal concerns rule amendments to enhance disclosures regarding climate-related risks and opportunities. And the third proposal concerns rule amendments to enhance disclosures regarding board diversity. 
Let's turn to a practice pointer. While a new framework for climate and ESG-related disclosures has yet to be promulgated by the SEC, the Climate and ESG Task Force, and the Enforcement Division more generally, are focusing on potential ESG-related misconduct under the existing regime. Companies should review their existing public disclosures relating to ESG, regardless of whether those disclosures appear in SEC filings, annual or ESG reports, website posts, or elsewhere, through the lens of the increased focus on the accuracy of such disclosures. Companies should also proactively prepare with counsel for the upcoming changes to the disclosure regime. Julia, as further evidence of the SEC's leadership's focus on ESG issues, in September 2021, the Division of Corp. FIM published a sample letter setting out comments the division may issue to companies regarding climate-related disclosures. The sample letter, for instance, asked companies about their consideration of harmonizing their climate disclosures in their SEC filings and corporate social responsibility reports. And the letter also asked companies to identify pending or existing climate change-related legislation, regulations, and international accords that may have a material effect on their businesses. I'd like to mention one practice pointer here. With this focus on climate change and other ESG issues, companies should be aware that their ESG activities and disclosures will likely come under closer scrutiny from both the SEC and private investors. Given that the new climate and ESG task force will work alongside the division of Corp Fin, the division's comments in the sample letter may shed light on potential areas of interest for the task force. So going forward, companies should also be aware that responses to inquiries from the Division of Corp Fin may be shared with the task force and ultimately with the Division of Enforcement. Thanks, Jeff. Let's shift now to another area of enforcement focus. The SEC has continued to closely examine cryptocurrency and digital asset offerings to determine whether they are securities that require registration. Steve, can you tell us about some of the enforcement activities that have taken place in the digital asset space? There were a number of notable enforcement actions last year involving cases where the respondents allegedly distributed digital tokens without registration or exemption from the securities laws. First, in February 2021, the SEC filed an amended complaint against Ripple Labs and two of its executives alleging that they sold unregistered digital asset securities. The case involves a virtual currency called XRP, which Ripple argues is not a security, and other regulators both in the United States and abroad have concluded is not subject to securities regulation. The case is now in discovery. Second, in August, the SEC settled charges against Poloniex, which the SEC alleged had operated a digital asset trading platform that facilitated the trading of unregistered digital assets that constituted investment contracts. The company agreed to enter a cease and desist order and $10.4 million in disgorgement, interest, and civil penalties. Third, the SEC settled charges against another trading platform, DeFi Money Market, also in August. The response agreed to a cease and desist order and to pay disgorgement totaling $12.8 million. According to the order, the respondents use smart contracts, which are contracts that rely on computer protocols to facilitate, verify, execute, and automatically enforce the terms of a commercial agreement to sell digital tokens. 
and the respondents promised investors that the money market could use the digital assets to purchase real-world assets that generated income to cover, but the market could not operate as promised due to price volatility of the digital assets. And fourth, in May, the SEC filed an enforcement action against five promoters of BitConnect, an online cryptocurrency trading platform, allegedly for offering and selling unregistered digital asset securities. In September, the SEC expanded its action, alleging that BitConnect, its founder, another promoter, and the promoter's company conducted a fraudulent unregistered offer and sale of securities in the form of BitConnect's lending program. These actions suggest that a major enforcement priority for the SEC is enforcing the registration requirement for public offerings where the SEC believes that a digital asset meets the definition of a security. The Polonics and DeFi money market settlements further indicate that the Commission is pursuing enforcement against digital trading venues and platforms that it believes permit trading of digital tokens as unregistered securities. These priorities are consistent with recent statements by SEC leadership. Last August, Chairman Gensler stated at the Aspen Security Forum that the SEC needed additional congressional authority to prevent cryptocurrency transactions, products, and platforms from falling between regulatory cracks. He also testified before the Senate Banking Committee in September, suggesting that there is insufficient investor protection in crypto finance, issuance, trading, and lending, and that the SEC, CFTC, and other regulators can provide more robust oversight and investor protection around the field of crypto finance. Here's a practice pointer. We expect the SEC to continue to scrutinize whether digital assets constitute securities and therefore require registration or an exemption. Prior to initiating offerings, companies should closely consider whether digital assets meet the definition of a security requiring registration or exemption, and what position the SEC is likely to take on these offerings. The SEC is also likely to focus on other areas of crypto finance, so all companies in the space should expect to prepare for close regulatory scrutiny. Steve, thanks for that helpful guidance. Now let's turn to developments in regulation and enforcement around SPAC transactions. Last year, the SEC issued a number of widely reported statements regarding accounting, financial reporting, and governance issues applicable to SPACs. These announcements may affect both SEC enforcement and private securities litigation relating to SPACs. For example, in April 2021, John Coates, the acting director of Corp Fin, and Paul Munter, the acting chief accountant, issued a staff statement on accounting and reporting considerations for warrants issued by SPACs. The statement suggested that warrants issued by a SPAC should be classified as a liability measured at fair value rather than equity instruments. Julia, what was the effect of this statement? Jeff, in support of this conclusion, the SEC staff statement noted that according to generally accepted accounting principles, a contract should be classified as an asset or liability when the contract cannot be indexed to the entity's own stock or when an event outside the entity's control may require net cash settlement. SPAC warrants, according to the statement, may provide for, one, potential changes to the settlement amounts based on the holder of the warrant, 
and two may not be indexed to the entity stock, both of which suggest that SPAC warrants fall within this classification. The staff statement noted that if SPACs incorrectly classify their warrants, they may be required to file various restatements to correct the error. As a result, some SPACs have had to postpone or restate their financial statements, which has formed the basis of at least one securities fraud claim and private shareholder litigation to date. Also in April 2021, Julia, the Division of Corporation Finance issued a statement on SPACs, IPOs, and liability risk that discussed disclosures associated with DSPAC transactions. In this statement, Acting Director Coates noted a widespread perception among SPAC participants that DSPAC transactions involve less exposure to securities law liability. But Mr. Coates argued that this may be a misleading view based on his perspective and analysis that disclosures in DSPAC transactions may be subject to 33 Act, 34 Act, and state law provisions concerning effective registration statements and proxy solicitations, as well as duties of candor and other fiduciary duties. Now, here's a practice point we should focus on. In this statement, Mr. Coates was signaling the SEC's apparent view at the time that DSPAC transactions may be subject to the same securities law liabilities as regular IPOs. Companies seeking to go public through a DSPAC transaction should therefore be aware of these risks as they make disclosures in financial statements, projections, and other information in the context of a transaction involving SPACs. Jeff, let's shift topics now and talk about the SEC's whistleblower program. In 2020, the program saw its 10-year anniversary with record-breaking statistics. And in 2021, the program continued to issue significant awards, including an award of $110 million to a single whistleblower, the second highest award in the program's history. The number of tips received also exploded from just over 6,000 to nearly double over 12,000 tips in 2021. The SEC has announced it's considering two potential revisions to the rules governing whistleblower awards. The two rules the commission may revise are first, a rule that precludes the SEC from making an award in related enforcement actions if a second alternative whistleblower award program might also apply to the action. And second, a rule that could be used by the commission to reduce or limit an award because the absolute size of the award is deemed too high. If adopted, these revisions may create additional incentives for whistleblowers to come forward with information relevant to law enforcement and regulatory agencies. Steve, these potential developments really do seem to underscore that the SEC's whistleblower program really can and does have important practical ramifications for companies. Companies really should be alert to the possibility that a whistleblower has provided information to the SEC and should take steps to make sure they understand all the relevant facts in an investigation so they can place into context any information provided to the SEC by a whistleblower who, of course, may have provided the SEC with incorrect or inaccurate information. Jeff, we're also seeing continued efforts on the part of the SEC to investigate and prosecute cases of insider trading. In a recent case against former biopharmaceutical executive, Matthew Panawat, 
the SEC adopted a novel approach to the misappropriation theory of insider trading. Under that theory, a person commits fraud and violates the securities laws when he trades on material non-public information in breach of a duty to the source of the information. It's meant to protect against abuses by outsiders to a corporation who have access to confidential information that will affect the corporation's stock price, but who don't owe any fiduciary or other duty to that corporation's shareholders. In the Ponawat case, the SEC alleged that the defendant, a former employee of a biopharmaceutical company called Medivation, committed insider trading by purchasing stock in one of his company's competitors. It's alleged that Mr. Ponawat had confidential information that Pfizer would acquire Medivation, and that as a result of the acquisition, Medivation's competitors would also become more valuable and their stock prices would rise. This is the first time the SEC has sought to extend the misappropriation theory to allege insider trading where an insider traded neither in his own company's stock or in the stock of the acquiring company, but traded in the stock of an unrelated third party. On January 14th of this year, the district court denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. The case has already garnered significant commentary, and it's worth following closely to see what happens. Steve, we'll all keep an eye on that case. Let's finish up with a quick discussion about COVID-related matters. As the COVID-19 pandemic persists, it continues to have an impact on the SEC's enforcement priorities. We will highlight just a few of the significant developments today. It is important to recall that in March 2020, the SEC formed a coronavirus steering committee to coordinate the SEC's investigations related to an array of potential coronavirus-related wrongdoing. Some of the committee's work is likely reflected in the SEC's enforcement action against the Cheesecake Factory for making misleading disclosures about the impact of the pandemic on its business operations and financial condition. In December 2020, the SEC announced that it had settled these charges with an order finding the Cheesecake Factory had violated reporting provisions of the securities laws and the SEC imposed a $125,000 penalty. These kinds of enforcement actions continued into 2021. In July, the SEC settled charges against Parallax Health Sciences and two of its executives, in which it alleged that they had made misleading statements about Parallax's efforts to capitalize on COVID-19. Specifically, the SEC charged that Parallax claimed that it had developed a COVID-19 screening test and had PPE, ventilators, and other medical equipment for immediate sale, even though the company was insolvent, lacked capital to develop a screening test, and had no equipment on hand. Without admitting or denying the SEC's allegations, the respondents agreed to pay $185,000 in civil penalties and to be prohibited from acting as officers or directors of a public company for a term of years. These types of actions reaffirm that the SEC will continue to monitor coronavirus-related disclosures and pursue enforcement action against companies that make inadequate or misleading statements. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. For a more in-depth discussion of today's topics, please take a look at our biannual Securities Enforcement and Litigation Update, available on the Securities Litigation page of our website. Please also join Jeff, Steve, and me for our SNC's Critical Insights podcast, 
on recent developments in private securities litigation, a recap on important trends that we are seeing in securities cases filed by private plaintiffs in federal and state courts. Thank you.